Many critics of the free market criticize it for consisting of greedy, envious, dog-eat-dog mentalities and short-sighted decision-makers. The problem with all of these criticisms is that they apply many times over to the government, since one cannot opt out of funding them, and the government does not face competition. Said another way, while voluntarily funded competing organizations may have shortcomings, they are preferable to the coercively funded monopolies of the state. Welcome back to The Corporate Report, everyone. I'm James Corbett of CorporateReport.com. It is August of 2022, and it's been at least, what, four or five days now since I just uh, recommended a couple of dozen books for you, and I'm sure you've all read through them by now. So, how about another one? <laughs> yes, today I am here with another book recommendation. Uh, this one is called The Voluntarist Handbook. It is a collection of essays, excerpts, and quotes. And it has been compiled, edited together by good friend of The Corporate Report, previous guest, you should know him well, Keith Knight of Keith Knight Don't Tread on Anyone of the Libertarian Institute. He has an Odyssey page. I'm sure you've seen his work before. If not, the link will be in the show notes so that you can see it, along with the link to this brand new book, Hot Off the Press. Keith Knight, thanks for talking to us today. Always appreciate your time, James. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the amount of time and effort that goes into creating and editing a compilation like this of essays, excerpts, and quotes. There's, there is quite an interesting mixture of things in here. But before we dive into the contents of this book, first of all, I should note that uh, this book is available, obviously, as a physical paperback like I have. It is also available as a free PDF on odyssey.com right now. But I trust that the Corporate Report audience wants to support people who do put in the time, effort, and energy to make things like this available to you, so please do consider purchasing the actual physical book, which uh, I will put the link in the show notes so that people can do that. Um, but I am loath to always, always, always have to start at square one or the square before one with conversations like this, but it's just a fact of life that 99.9999% of the population is statist by default and can't even imagine what anything else actually might be. So, <laughs> voluntary, voluntarism, volunteerism, as I hear people sometimes say, because it, which is, is, it, it rankles me, and as a man of letters, I'm sure, Keith, it probably rankles you to hear people saying things like volunteerism and other butcherings of, of a fairly simple word, voluntarism. But it's not just it's not just a semantic thing. It's not just a, oh, they got the name wrong. It shows that they don't understand what the name is or what it means. So I appreciate that you started this collection with a list of definitions. Tell me your definition for voluntarism. I use the definition given by the founder of voluntarism, a gentleman named Auburn Herbert. I just want to get it right. It's the moral position which maintains that no peaceful person can justly be submitted to the control of others in the absence of his or her own consent. So we see this virtually on a daily basis with what we would regard as common sense morality. So you could both look at someone who was enslaved and look at another person working hard and saying, well, these are both people performing labor. They're both working hard, toiling. They might not get paid a lot. Uh, what is the difference between these two? You might look at um, one person going to someone's house and another person getting kidnapped. In both cases, they're at someone else's geographical location. There is a foundational difference between these actions, trade and theft, rape and lovemaking. And that is the fact that uh, both parties, both uh, adults in these activities are engaged in consensual activities because they have the better claim to their body 
society, then their neighbor, then the wise people of society, then the rich people of society, then the majority of society, they get the final say in how they spend their scarce time on this earth, meaning you're not entitled to anyone's time. So unless someone chooses to voluntarily give you a second of their time, a year of their time, or a penny out of their pocket, you are not entitled to anyone else's time unless they voluntarily give it to you. So we both have this moral foundation as well as the economic uh, well-being of uh, we're not able to achieve our ends in society unless we're able to do so in a cooperative manner that's cohesive as opposed to being destructive. Now, that is the general foundation of what voluntarism is, uh, referring to interactions being voluntary, not, uh, as Anna Kasparian once said, based on people volunteering and not being compensated for things. <laughs> yeah, don't get your political philosophy from Anna Kasparian. All right. All right. No, excellent. Simple. Very simple. Very straightforward. I would say fairly uncontroversial. I think anyone who would dispute the sort of basic ethical principle that's being uh, elaborated there is probably not someone that I want to be associated with. But it is absolutely revolutionary to simply play that single fundamental ethical principle out to its logical conclusion and extend those conclusions out to the, the space of politics and the state, which for some reason is this special thing that has this special category in people's brains. That's why you can easily compile 300 pages. It could have been, I'm sure, much larger than 300 pages, but here's 300 pages on this subject elaborated by lots and lots of different writers in lots of different contexts. And that's actually the first thing I'd like to uh, ask you about why where did this idea for to do this come from why and how did this project get started well the self-serving answer is i was sick of repeating myself so i just wanted one thing where i could say i've done the work here it is goodbye the reason that I was so motivated to have one thing that I could give people is because I know it can be intimidating. There's so many books out there on so many topics. It's sort of like they all cancel each other out. Whereas if I had said, look, here's one book that I want to give people to uh, sort of introduce them to this freedom philosophy, sort of you could uh, imagine this is kind of uh, the idea attempted to uh, pick up the mantle from the American Declaration of Independence. The earliest essay I have in here is from 1850, a gentleman named uh, Frederick Bastiat. Uh, from France writing. So uh, it's uh, the attempt to take these principles and apply them uh, consistently. The reason it's so important to have them all together is because, well, they have no problem asking us to spend 12 years of our lives uh, reading their materials uh, at the youngest age. My thing is, look, if I would love for you to listen to a hundred podcasts and you know read fifty books and these essays and oh you got to join me for this seminar it's going to be so fun. My whole thing was look check out this one book I think this will give you the best understanding of sort of uh, where we are. I intentionally had such a variety of people coming at it, both from uh, what you could call uh, leftism. Uh, this would be anyone who focuses highly on uh, the amount of e egalitarianism. Uh, in between both individuals and institutions. John Locke actually summarized this saying that it's not just that me and you have equality before the judges and the officers. We also have equality with the judges and the officers. So this is something people like uh, Sheldon Richman has two articles in here. Uh, Roderick T. Long 
also has uh, uh, two articles. Uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe takes the philosophy of Karl Marx, uh, the exploitation theory, and attempts to show how there is overlap with the freedom theory. That's called uh, Austrian versus Marxist class analysis. So those people would be generally considered on the right. So anyone who cares about things like equality and making sure people live with dignity, there's something for them. When it comes to people on the right, we have the a former senior editor of National Review, William F. Buckley's right-hand man, a guy named Joe Sobrin. He wrote, he writes uh, an article in here. Uh, number's not coming to me. It's titled The Reluctant Anarchist. And he basically came to this conclusion that once you give one group a monopoly on decision-making within a geographical area with people they haven't uh, consented with or contracted with, and there's no give-and-take sort of contract. There's the, there's these unilateral contracts where you have an obligation to obey, and the state does not have an obligation to provide protection. In fact, when they don't provide protection, like Pearl Harbor or 9-11, the amount of power they have increases. So once you grant that monopoly, then basically any words on paper – are unilaterally interpreted by them, and they have this ultimate amount of power. So the idea that, well, what if the American government uh, gets tyrannical sometime in the future? Well, anyone looking at events such as uh, Hiroshima or things, uh, uh, Operation Meeting House or Vietnam or uh, operations in Iraq or sanctions or mistreatment of the natives – all of these things, that is not to bash America. It's just where I'm from, so I use those examples. Uh, all of those things, what makes them bad is they were initiating violence against non-aggressors. They weren't just defending themselves in those cases against those people. So it comes down to I chose uh, these things because I wanted people from both the right and left to realize that their views are actually harmonious with the idea of volunteerism. And I try to get the highest number of essays that would ha that would give me multiple different starting points that led to the same conclusion. People from the left, people from the right, from the 1850s up to today. Um, also, I stole the idea from Michael Malice's Anarchist Handbook. <laughs> I, I like the TLDR there, but <laughs> but yeah, uh, let me honestly let me commend you for your editorial selection process in this. As I was reading through it, I. It really struck me. I mean, there's no way not to be struck by this. This ranges all the way from really uh, scholarly essays by professors and historians and philosophers and with, with footnotes and all of that, very serious essays, all the way down to personal anecdotes from retired Marines and police officers and everything in between. There's transcripts of seminars and videos in here. There's quotations. There's excerpts of various sorts. It's just such a broad range of material. And as you say, all swirling around the same idea. And at times, it can almost feel repetitive. Like, well, this guy's just saying what the last guy was saying. But then there are other times where, actually, no, that's really different than what that other guy was saying and coming at it from a completely different perspective. And some of them, I, I think, yeah, that's, that's bang on. Some of them, I think, no, I don't, I don't think I agree with that. But that's actually one of the refreshing things about this. This is not a Bible or some catechism you must all now read from the hymn book of voluntarism. No, there's lots of different people that have different approaches to this and, and have different takes on it. And uh, that's a good thing, I think, at least uh, from my perspective. How about from your perspective? Do you have a, I mean, it's like choosing babies, I'm sure, but do you have a favorite essay that you've included in here? 
Yes, um, I would. Uh, I think I would have to choose. I believe it is chapter seven, six questions for status. So this was by uh, Stefan Molyneux in his book Practical Anarchy: The Freedom of the Future. What he says is, look. I'm really interested in getting into the details of how, you know, things like a stateless society would work. We have examples of people, you know, arbitrating disputes, PayPal, Amazon, eBay. People do this constantly throughout the day. Um, you know, things like roads. There's a lot of roads that exist that are privately built by businesses who simply do so not because they're so kind, but because they want to bring people in. But instead of getting into those, I first want to have six questions that we go through before – uh, but before we really start uh, criticizing this, this way we can make sure we are on the same page. So it's only a three-page chapter. The first thing he says is, does government actually solve the problem in question? So very often uh, people will say, well, you can't have you know a stateless society because it could be taken over by another society. There could be uh, some people who exploit others. What this leaves out is the fact that this very same injustice occurs with or without a state. So they're taking something that exists in human society and then uniquely pinning it on the concept of voluntarism. So Molyneux really introduces people into uh, getting how to think this way. Second question he asks is, can the criticism of the anarchic solution be equally applied to the statist solution? In other words, well um, – the thing, you, the reason you can't have a voluntarily funded, you know, police agency is uh, the police agency. If they're not, you know, accountable to the voters, they might just not defend you. Well, um, there are a number of examples. There was just a main, uh, major one in America where 376 police officers sat outside while parents are running in trying to save their kids from a murderer. So that's one example. Other examples, um, the government of China didn't exactly protect its citizens uh, from Chiang Kai-shek or Chairman Mao or Emperor Hirohito. Uh, the population of Germany uh, was uh, not very well protected, so they don't. Uh, that government didn't solve the problem. I think 1.3 million Frenchmen were killed in the First World War alone. So having a state, having a monopolist on protection does not solve this problem. Problem. So that is a small intro into uh, what is probably my uh, favorite section of the book. Maybe it was just because when I read it, I had been coming at things so much from the idea of, all right, it's time to watch the news and kind of like figure out who to hate today. It's like, okay, we hate Iran. Yeah, those bastards are building nukes and they're like days away. They're pals with Hezbollah, who are the worst people on earth. Um, oh, we're back to hating Iraq just yesterday. Now I have to hate al-Qaeda again because they killed, allegedly, Ayman al-Zawahiri. And I've been hating Putin this whole time. And before, I was uh, hating the Banderites in Ukraine because they're national socialists and um, there's a white supremacist element there. But now I have to support giving them $40 billion a year. And I used to hate the rich, but now we have to like them because they're also our countrymen. So instead of getting in this, you listen to the media for them to issue your opinion of the day. That's so unnecessarily divisive. Hating people based on accidents of birth, these arbitrary divisions. You can actually build a genuine divide and unifying strategy based on people who achieve their ends in life voluntarily versus people who achieve their ends in life violently. Those are the ultimate exploiters. So I hadn't really thought of things on those terms until I had come across that article from uh, from Molyneux. And especially, you don't have to, like, you know, travel to the top of Mount Everest and read some secret sc scroll to find this empirical evidence. He goes, 
before getting into the specifics of, you know, how many people the government's killed and how long it takes them to show up to 911 calls versus private organizations that were tried in, you know, places like Detroit. He goes, let's talk about things that we're just able to understand logically. And that's why I like uh, that article so much. Second favorite would be Chapter 42, Logical Fallacies by Michael Humer. Uh, th that one I just have a blast reading every time. So yeah, th those are uh, the two that come to mind. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if I could choose a favorite. Um, I, I'm familiar with a lot of this material, but some of it was new to me, and perhaps the stuff that was new to me was, was more interesting just for virtue of being new. Um, for example, uh, Chapter 9 on Social Cooperation by Sheldon Richman. I had not heard the, the little anecdote that he starts off with here as FEE's Advanced Austrian Economic Seminar at FEE's Advanced Austrian Economic Seminar last summer, more than one speaker mentioned that Ludwig von Mises uh, considered a different title for the book we know as Human Action. The other title? Social Cooperation. I've heard that story before, but this time it got me thinking. Would the free market movement have been perceived differently by the outside world if Mises had used the other title? With the question phrased so narrowly, the answer is probably no, so let's broaden it. Would the free market movement be perceived differently if its dominant theme was social cooperation rather than rugged individual individualism, self-reliance, independence, and other synonyms we're so fond of? That's an excellent starting point for e examining this from a fresh perspective, because obviously, uh, you've been in this long enough to hear this a million times, I certainly have, from people who, oh, you're always talking about individuals and individuals, and you just want to live in a cabin in the woods all by yourself. No, 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 no. The heart of voluntarism is cooperation. That is what this is about, working together, consensually, mutually, on uh, things that we agree on in order to build build up the world rather than forcing people at gunpoint to do what I want them to do and then we can argue over who's holding the gun. That's that's insanity. This is social cooperation. Um, so I think reframing things like that is just so valuable and that's why I appreciate discovering new nuggets like this one that I, I hadn't seen before. So I appreciate that. Another thing that I appreciate um, in this collection is, as I say, not... Not necessarily that people are contradicting each other, but they're just coming at it from such different ways that you, no matter where you are on the statist anarchist spectrum or left or right or what flavor of anarchism you like or whatever, there will be something here that will be in accord with what you think and will be, oh yeah, that's what I think. And then there will be other ones that think that you think, no, 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 that's not right. Like, for example, I really appreciated reading um, What It Means to Be an Anarcho-Capitalist by Stefan Kinsella, who I've, I've, I've read this essay before, but reading it in this collection, um, it really stuck out to me just how beautifully simply he defines sort of the nature of anarchism in that first paragraph of that article and how it's an ethical point of view and that's why it confuses utilitarians. And in a way, uh, although it's not really a contradiction, but um, when, uh, when Rothbard in War, Peace, and the State is writing about the Buckley criticism that, yo, know, you dreamers just out there, you know, sort of dreaming, but you have no strategic intelligence about what you're talking about. So Rothbard's like, all right, you want strategic intelligence? Looking at the war, the question of war and peace? All right, here we go. And he goes deep dive into sort of the more utilitarian-ish type of way of looking at this. And as I say, it's not necessarily a contradiction, but it's very different approaches, and I appreciate having that mixture of them. Um, tell me uh, uh, about your own experience of putting this together and, and finding that balance between different approaches. Yeah, I definitely uh, l liked how uh, Rothbard would uh, sort of take Buckley up on something like that. As if that criticism doesn't apply to Buckley, you could just <laughs> say, well, okay, 
Um, let me think. If it, what if there's like ever a war that America goes into and it lasts twenty years, and then the opponents take over the capital after eleven days? Then surely, I mean, like if it was ever like the first time NATO declared Article Five, well, then you guys would say, well, we can't have a state providing this security. Then you, you know, you utopian government believers would have to give things up. If after you know twelve years of school. Uh, and kids are not only not smart, they believe things that are just verifiably untrue. Well, then Eustatus would just have to give up this fantasy that we could just give the state this power and they'll give us education and protection. Uh, they're uh, actually the, uh, the the utopians here. As far as uh, c- coming at it from uh, fr- from different uh, aspects, I really like the fact that there are a number of professors with PhDs who have also come to this conclusion, who have a great deal of both empirical research that you can test, but after you know seeing so many times where uh, empiricism fails or it's really difficult to replicate things or it's true but that was sort of a fad or that's a thing in America it's less true in you know places like Nigeria uh, what uh, these professors are able to do is first come up with very brilliant analogies someone like Jason Brennan he gives you three thought experiments that sort of really take you out of the realm of being so uh, connected with your identity. So he, so he doesn't say, well, imagine if Trump did this. Would you like that? Well, what if Obama did this? Well, anyone hearing that is already ha- already has an opinion on one or uh, one or uh, two of those people. So what Brennan says is, let's take this guy, Virtuous Fanny. You know, he is so virtuous that uh, he really cares about the poor. In fact, he cares so much that um, he is going to uh, require that you give him money so he could help these people that are impoverished. And horrible news, if you don't help Virtuous Vanny, well, he actually gets to take your house. Um, but the point is, is that uh, he's going to help them, and you might disagree with how effective his help is, but uh, he's going to take your house. Uh, we would immediately see this as this is a guy who's robbing us under the guise of helping us, or he hasn't put any thought into this. Well, Brennan correctly says this is in principle no different than what you would call property taxes, which I think in all 50 states in America, uh, we certainly have. This means that if you don't chip in for your local, that uh, they are mostly allocated towards uh, schooling facilities. So if you don't chip in, they will literally confiscate your house, and if you try to resist them, they get to shoot you, which is the ultimate claim that they have what you could refer to as government supremacy. They call the shots. Everyone else has to obey. This is what you could maybe call the least equal institution in society, and sometimes it takes people who have been professors who have really dug through all this for them to be able to effectively communicate something like that. The other example he uses is, well, smoking's bad for you. I mean, look, the studies show smoking is bad for you. So this guy, uh, in order to help society as a whole stop things like lung cancer, secondhand smoke, parents dying, children living without parents because they've died from lung cancer unnecessarily, um, what uh, what what this guy um, uh, 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 passionate Peter is going to do is he's going to put you in a cage if he catches you smoking and if you resist him he is going to shoot you. Well, it, again in this case you see it's cl- a blatant example of some people initiating violence against others, showing how under any other circumstance we would see this as unjust. So uh, really the ability for a lot of these people to uh, use persuasion skills to uh, communicate to people that never would have crossed my mind in such a simple way 
this long explanation of mine. By the way, it's one page. In the book. <laughs> uh, it, it, this is the shortest chapter. But I just I just found it so. Uh, intriguing how he was able to just really grab your attention in such a short amount of time you say oh gosh i could watch don lemon every night for like six hours and i don't really learn much but in this one page i'm blown away and now i learn uh, how to communicate i learned a fundamental understanding of how these ideas are applicable in the real world today as uh, well as their effects i hope that answers the question i, I think it does that, that this is in some sense the most exciting part of a book like this is the way that it helps to reframe things uh, that people uh, uh, don't see clearly. And you can see it clearly in, in a very short and concise way that's explained very nicely. Um, for example, um, of course, you have Kuzan's uh, Do We Ever Really Get Out of Anarchy in here, which is an important essay, and I hope people will read it. But I also, uh, I, I just noticed in War, Peace, and the State, uh, Rothbard essentially makes the same argument in the space of a paragraph that is so important for people to understand. If you are a nationalist and you are opposed to globalism, then you are in favor of anarchy. You just don't know it yet. So uh, Rothbard writes, uh, in the modern world, each land area is ruled over by a state organization, but there are a number of states scattered over the earth, each with a monopoly of violence over its own territory. No super state exists with a monopoly of violence over the entire world, and so a state of anarchy exists between the several states. It has always been a source of wonder, incidentally, to this writer, how the same conservatives who denounce as lunatic any proposal for eliminating a monopoly of violence over a given territory and thus leaving private individuals without an overlord should be equally insistent upon leaving states without an overlord to settle disputes between them. The former is always denounced as crackpot anarchism. The latter is hailed as preserving independence and national sovereignty from world government. So, again, such a simple point, but so effectively stated there, and as I say, in much greater detail by in Kuzan, uh, Kuzan's essay. But um, th that strikes me that the very people who perhaps most need to read this book are probably the people who won't read it. <laughs> I would assume a lot of people who buy the Voluntarist Handbook already consider themselves to be voluntarists, or at least interested in the philosophy, but the dyed-in-the-wool statists, who, sure, whatever, maybe a collection like this won't convince them, but at the very least, it will get brain cells firing. It will start to at least put some some thoughts in people's minds that they might not have had before. I think those are the people who really need to see this book. Unfortunately, probably won't see it. But who was your audience? What audience did you have in mind putting this collection together? The reason this book took so long is because Scott Horton and I, as well as my colleagues at the Libertarian Institute, we really wanted something that we could hand to anyone who's interested in politics. And we said, well, we want to, well, we don't want to water down the message at all. So the very common watering down we get uh, from people um, on our side, uh, certainly people uh, like uh, David Bowes will, uh, at uh, the Cato Institute will say very uh, bland things and uh, j just try not to hurt anyone's feelings. A lot of these regime change wars have unintended consequences and seldom are they in the interest of the American people. That's not in this book. In here, it's Scott Horton and Lou Rockwell saying, war is a euphemism for mass murder based on collectivist lies. So I said, I'm, I'm not willing to water down this message at all. So 
basically what we were banking on is grabbing people's attention in such a way to show them that this is a productive conversation. It's not just some, you know, a pie in the sky philosophy that you would only read in a classroom. So it's anyone who would be watching the news and feels like they can not get a lot of bang for their buck. You can watch a lot of Sean Hannity. I mean, the best um, caveat to that would be, you know, Tucker Carlson's probably the best, and you still have to watch quite a bit. You can even see him uh, uh, being very principled in some areas. Uh, it, it's vitally important that uh, we don't risk war with Russia while vilifying people uh, like China or justifying uh, the war state uh, in other areas, such as the second. Uh, world war so it's like yeah the greatest mass murder in history it's like well that was uh unnecessary to uh conscript millions of people into 60 million lives killing civilians uh giving uh, mothers without sons well that was virtuous the problem is is that uh, you can hear so much of uh these ideas without ever uh coming across a consistent approach to how they can be analyzed so what we're banking on is that uh, people who are generally interested in politics at all will see this and it'll show them, wow, I did not know uh, that I was thirsty until I drank this for the first time. This is what? This is productive. I just read a page and I really learned something. Whereas you could read Mitt Romney's No Apology probably five or six times <laughs> and not extract anything about – well, it, it was published, what, in like 2011 or 2012 when I read it? And today, I mean, it's good for like firewood in, uh, in December. There's nothing that uh, you can get out of it. Whereas these, I think, are really timeless. I think anyone who comes across them will learn uh, something from them. So that's why that's my justification for saying that anyone generally interested in politics is my audience with this book. Yeah. Yeah, as someone who just uh, did a, a, an entire course and documentary series about the history of on of media, mass media, I I can feel your pain. It's like, no, 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 th this isn't boring. Honestly, this is really important. Actually, it's really interesting and important. And once you see it, you'll know. But you have to see it first. You you won't know you're thirsty till you drink. <laughs> anyway, I I get that pain. Um, well, again, an incredibly interesting collection of essays. No matter where you come on the statist anarchist spectrum or what, what flavor of whatever political ideology you subscribe to, there is stuff in here that's worth reading, including the stuff that I disagree with. Yes, there is stuff in here that I disagree with. I think this person's wrong. They're making the wrong argument. Walter Williams, The Argument for Free Markets, Morality versus Efficiency. People who criticize the existing distribution of income as being unfair and demand government redistribution are really criticizing the process whereby income is earned. Their bottom line is that millions of individual decision makers did not do the right thing. Consider the wealth of billionaire Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft. Gates earned billions because millions of individuals voluntarily spent their money on what they wanted, his products. For someone to say that Gates' income is unfair is the same as saying that the decisions of millions of consumers are wrong. No, absolute hogwash. No, Gates relied on the state and patent laws in order to enforce an artificially restricted uh, market that has nothing to do with free markets. That couldn't be more wrong. Having said that, I agree with much else of the core substance of William's argument, and I agree with so much of what's in this book. It's all fascinating and interesting stuff, but that doesn't mean I necessarily agree with every point that's being made by every author. I would assume, even for yourself, it's not like you agree with every single thing that's being said in a book like this, but that you think it's valuable for people to hear. 
Of course, yeah. Well, there's only so many chapters where I could just use excerpts or use an entire thing except take out one or two paragraphs. So, uh, of course, you're relying on uh, the uh, the reader's ability to discern. And for that discernment, you have chapter 42 on how to think clearly by, uh, the, uh, by Michael uh, Humer. The goal of uh, me bringing a lot of this, so so someone like Walter Williams, just so brilliant. Imagine a guy growing up in the Jim Crow South. He's uh, conscripted into, I want to say it was uh, d- during the uh, Korean War. I don't think he ever saw combat. But, I mean, for someone like that to come so far and get such an intellectual um, the foundation into things that are extremely difficult to uh, g- go, uh, g- go into. He said, well— uh, I didn't join the Marines. I had my labor services confiscated from me. Do, I don't think people realize how unpopular that would have been to say in a time where, well, don't you know we have to, we can't surrender to uh, the, the communists. So anyone who's in uniform is, you know, a, a part of the nation and whatnot. So uh, those people have so much wisdom that even when I really think that I have one on them, I go, well, maybe they're really communicating something in here that we'll learn later. And as far as intellectual property, I have a chapter by Isaac Morehouse on here that's titled How I Changed My Mind on Copyright. More or less, he's saying that um, if I have this physical book and you take it from me, well, now I no longer have it, and we can consider that theft. But what if you snapped your fingers and made one copy or a million copies? Yes, it would change the value, but value just means uh, a price that other people are willing to pay or sacrifice for or something that other people see in something. So it's not that people have a right to the value. It's that they have a right to the physical integrity of their body and uh, justly acquired resources. So you you get so many good nuggets like that. But another uh, uh, similarity you will see between all of these authors is their ability to show uh, the re- is to show the reader how to think as opposed to sort of listing off bullet points. So when I quote someone like Brian Kaplan uh, multiple times toward the end, uh, people like Ben Powell, people like Michael Humer, uh, Thomas E. Woods Jr. Uh, has written an excellent essay on the misplaced fear of monopoly. Sheldon Richmond, Scott Horton has an article, Individualism vs. War. What they're showing you is how to think critically. So it's not about memorizing certain things, because if all you do is memorize things, the next scam, whether it's going to be called a virus or a terrorism, whatever it is, I promise you, it'll be, this is different now. It'll be something to that extent of, well, we've never seen this before. In the past, that would have worked, but now it's totally different. Now, now people do have the right to rule other people. This is different. Uh, then we're going to have to publish like a new book every few months because it's like, oh, Putin went further than Donist and Luhans. All right, new book. Now we got to justify this. Um, so because they're teaching you how to think, you never have to play catch up with, now I have to go find the empirical research for the new scam they're trying to sell me with regards to – why they now have the right to rule people, which they previously didn't. So because these uh, authors are so good at teaching people how to think, I think uh, people will really benefit from having a copy on hand. A lot of the articles are very short. Uh, Only two of them are rather long. And there's two sections that are – three sections, rather, that are just quotes uh, that you could just have as a coffee table book, 
briefly read things and get uh, the summary. And if you just want a summary, the first two and last two pages, the introduction and the afterward, I try to summarize everything for people who aren't willing to uh, read the uh, whole collection. Yeah. In fact, that was what I was thinking as I was going through this. This isn't necessarily the type of book you want to sit down and read cover to cover. You could, but it's the book you can dip in and out and, oh, I'll read this essay or, oh, I want to look at this quote. And it would be a great coffee table book. Imagine red-pilling people with just having this lying around. They pick it up and they're like, oh, my God, start to blow their minds. Imagine if a dentist was putting this in their you know, waiting room. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think it could be very effective in that way as well. Um, and uh, uh, sorry, I, I genuinely just remembered, but yeah, I, I, I'm in here as well. Thank you for including one of my uh, a, a, an excerpt from one of my previous newsletter editorials that I think is quite appropriate, and I'm glad you included it because it's, I think, important stuff to include, but uh, that's not why I'm promoting this book, <laughs> by the way. But uh, I, I do appreciate that, and uh, as I say, I think everyone, there will be something in here for everyone of any political persuasion. If you are interested in understanding these issues at a deeper level, and not even in that framework of politics and the way people think of politics. No, this is about fundamental principles and how human beings should act and organize and cooperate and all of these fundamental questions about what it means to be human. It affects everyone. So I hope people will take it up. Now, assuming people are interested and they do pick it up and they do read it and they are interested in more, where should people go for more after they have read the Voluntarist Handbook? After they've read the Voluntarist Handbook, well, libertarianinstitute.org has thousands of articles, essays, podcasts, and videos that could uh, k keep anyone busy for uh, the rest of eternity. We're constantly uh, uh, updating the site and uh, putting new things up there on a uh, daily basis, libertarianinstitute.org. We're attempting to have a free uh, educational archive, so anyone can go on there, go into the search engine, type in one thing they're interested in, and hopefully get both uh, the philosophical, in-depth, foundational understanding of what's going on, as well as the updated day-to-day uh, -day, uh, information. We have people like Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman focusing on uh, the excellent uh, foreign policy updates almost as they happen. We have a gentleman, uh, Patrick McFarlane, um, who I know you've uh, had on the show. He brings an excellent legal mind. So with someone with a law degree on our side, that's just a bit of a relief. Because I can always call him and say, no, that's not legal in any state. And I go, well, that's why we have you uh, on call. So, uh, yeah, a, a lot of us uh, there are uh, constantly uh, updating the place. And that is probably the best, best place to go after uh, you've read the book if you're interested in more. Excellent. Any big projects in the works or anything coming up next you'd like people to know about? Yeah, I am uh, working on a bunch of transcripts for my uh, interviews. So uh, people, I'm just asking some fans who their uh, favorite uh, interviews of mine have been. We're getting transcripts and probably making a book of uh, of that. But uh, other than that, uh, nothing, uh, nothing else in stone. Excellent. Well, okay, we'll leave it there for today. I will once again direct people not only to your blog at the Libertarian Institute, your Odyssey channel, the book itself, obviously. Um, once again, the link is in the show notes. I hope people will check it out. I think it'll be worth your time. Uh, but we'll leave this conversation here today. Keith Knight, thanks for your time. James Corbett, thank you for having me.